the cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. Let's make that climb together up the, the green, green peak. peak with your host, Richard Zwicky. Hi, everybody. I'm Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. And joining us today is Morgan Davis and Matt Lewis with the CBD Association. And uh, welcome aboard today. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And, you know, Matt, you were on just recently uh, pre, pre-election in the U.S. And we thought it would be a great opportunity to have a call just post-election. The, uh, you know, the votes have been counted or in most areas. And uh, we're headed down the path of a new administration coming in in January. But we also saw a number of states enact uh, legislation uh, legalizing cannabis for, for a variety of purposes in this last electoral round. And I thought it would be good to, uh, you know, for us and our listeners just to think about what the impact is of the of these changes on the future of the industry over the next couple of years. So, you know, the first wouldn't be, you know, what are your expectations based on a new administration? and How will that really change things? Well, thanks again for having us, Richard. Uh, it's a privilege to be on again. Um, yeah, it's been a whirlwind couple of weeks here in the States. Um, obviously, we have a new administration. Um, particularly with a vice president-elect who has been very adamant about the decriminalization of recreational marijuana, which, you know, for people in the industry is a good sign. Um, but despite having a administration kind of geared that way, really it's going to a lot depend on what happens in Georgia in January with these runoff elections. Absolutely. To determine who has, con- to determine who has control of the, of the Senate. Um, I think Morgan would agree with me that if you know the Republicans prevail and maintain control, that we can expect some kind of, I'll call it a watered down version of decriminalization in the next year. Um, we don't, you know, while everyone wants you know a legal market in the U.S., that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a priority for a Republican-led Senate. Mm-hmm. Conversely, if the Democrats could uh, take control of the Senate, I think we can expect expect more rapid approach to de- decriminalization to uh, a kind of a ramp up of uh, banking regulations that will facilitate uh, the financial institutions being able to engage in the cannabis industry. Uh, so really it's going to, it's going to come down to Georgia, I think in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, on that, you know, one of the, uh, one of the things that, you know, we've talked about with a number of people and in general is the whole question of decriminalization and, you know, Steve D'Angelo was on the show a couple of months ago and he was, uh, you know, he's been very active in trying to assist people. And there's been a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, who have or hold convictions for minor possession. When decriminalization occurs, do you expect there to be a blanket immunity against some of the, you know, those what really should be viewed as petty charges? Has there been much discussion? Well, decriminalization often is dealt with on a state-by-state basis. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the federal government and the federal law will will come into play for anyone convicted um, in the federal system, though I would find it unlikely that um, in the immediate future, the federal government would issue sort of a blanket expunction or removal of um, low-level uh, federal marijuana offenses. It'd be pretty out of character for them. But the states have already started to move in the direction of not only decriminalizing, but often 
adding to it an avenue where people with um, misdemeanor or low-level um, marijuana convictions can have them removed from their record, whether uh, some states have gone so far as to automatically remove them if that person is eligible, and other states have just simply allowed for uh, an extra expunction provision. Um, expunction often being the process by which someone removes something from their record, uh, but that varies state by state. It is a, it's a huge, it's a very important component when you're talking about criminal justice in the face of cannabis and the drug war and the damage that that's all caused. And anybody who's involved in the criminal justice side, in the um, sort of um, healing some of the wounds that have been caused by uh, the cannabis, the, the um, illegalization of marijuana and cannabis that's gone on in this country for so long, making it so that people with prior convictions can have them removed is an extremely important component. Yeah. And it's something that, um, it's something that Kamala Harris has been very vocal about, you know, earlier in this year, even before she was named the vice presidential nominee. Um, but again, it comes back to that earlier point of who's going to control the Senate. I think that if you're looking at a democratically controlled Senate, then she's going to be able to pursue that as Morgan said at a federal level, um, very quickly. But if it's a Republican controlled Senate, I think she's going to have a much, um, much steeper hill to climb. And then, you know, you're going to look at it to where some states, you know, if they are typically blue states, they're going to be more prone to kind of expunging records and uh, being, you know, less, uh, provide less enforcement for possession of small amounts and in red states see the opposite. So we're, it's really going to be a state by state thing. Um, but, you know, the national direction will greatly depend on who controls the Senate. Absolutely. Yeah, and unfortunately, it hasn't been a colorblind application of the laws, uh, which yeah. I think is part yeah. of what needs to be remediated. But, you know, leaving that that aside, and we can come back to it a bit later, you know, multiple states started down the path. For our mm -hmm. listeners, and based on your experience, how fast do you expect the regulations to follow? You know, vote doesn't just happen and everything opens tomorrow. What sort of guidance right. are you giving participants? So some of the states have been extremely proactive. New Jersey has already put some regulations on the floor. Um, their Senate and Assembly Committee uh, approved bills on Monday with new regulations. So those will probably be in play before the end of the year. Um, South Dakota, which is shocking to me, first state ever to pass legalization of marijuana, both recreationally and medically, Mm -hmm. um, the amendment that they passed for legalization of recreational use probably will also be in play before the end of the year. Um, and their measures for their medical program are by law required to be in place within 120 days. Um, I think Arizona is going to move just as quickly because they've already got some of the um, groundwork done. Um, Montana is going to have a harder time of it and Mississippi is going to have a harder time of it. Mississippi is actually, though I don't, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. They're still having to deal with a lawsuit that was filed to challenge the, um, the initial ballot initiative uh, prior to the election. Right. So there so, were, there's still challenges in Mississippi that'll even despite the vote that have to be reviewed. Correct. There's a lawsuit that was filed. Um, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. 
Um, obviously, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but um, the arguments are, are based on uh, some issues with the, the ballot initiative itself, not necessarily the election results. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in general, states that pass these ballot initiatives seem to have their ducks in a row and are ready to go. Um, and other states who didn't pass ballot initiatives, but I think are spurred on by the um, success of those five states in this election have already started to make moves. For example, Texas this week introduced more than 10 pieces of legislation in the pre-filing requirements for 2021 um, that range from several about decriminalization and expunctions and to um, a uh, pretty significant expansion of their existing medical marijuana program. Um, and they have, they're expecting more in the next few weeks. So we're yeah, seeing a lot a, of movement right now. We are, we are. And tell me if you had a crystal ball, Morgan, which would you say is going to be the last state to move? Unfortunately, I think it's going to be the state that I live in, which is North Carolina. Uh, the <laughs> South doesn't tend to move very quickly. And, um, our industrial hemp program is is quite liberal here, right. which uh, can sometimes result in a lack of movement um, for the marijuana side of the industry. Well, agreed. And let's come back to more on that after the break. We have to take a short break, but we'll be back in a moment with Morgan Lewis, uh, uh, Matt Lewis and Morgan Davis from the CBD Association. And I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. Be right back. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back on the Green Peak with Morgan Davis and Matt Lewis. And, um, you know, just before the break, we were talking about which state could be last to go. But more importantly, you know, was the point you made, uh, Morgan, with regards to, you know, the development of the hemp industry and how in some states that could be affecting the adoption of uh, marijuana laws. How are you seeing that? How is the association going to handle that? Richard, it's a really good question. It's something that our team has internally discussed quite extensively over the past few weeks because, you know, the legislature came out tomorrow at a federal level and decriminalized marijuana across the board, right? Um, you're going to look at a situation that is identical to what happened in the, with the 2018 Farm Bill of Industrial Hemp, just with, a, with much more at stake. And so when you're looking at the federal government that has not yet provided a clear regulatory framework for industrial hemp, which has left states, as we all know, scrambling to regulate industrial hemp within their own jurisdictions, 
Now you're going to see that with recreational and medicinal cannabis. Um, you're going to find states doing the same thing they've been doing since the passage of the Farm Bill and kind of going out on their own. Uh, and so for us at CBDA, what's been kind of our position on this, on the best way to move forward is, you know, states are the ones that are making movements. The federal government's not for whatever reason. And so we are actively involved in state advocacy campaigns in a variety of jurisdictions. And we think that's the that's the path forward is because states have the means to create their own regulatory frameworks. Um, and they're doing that. It, it makes sense, right? I mean, the tax money that California, Colorado, some of these other states that have been legal for a while are making, it makes sense for other states want to jump on board. That's why when New Jersey was kind of you know, seen as the one that all the other states were watching, because that's going to completely change the North, the Northeast, because all the other states are going to see the tax revenue brought in by New Jersey. They're going to want to legalize it on their own state level, and they're going to create their own uh, their tax gains from that. So I think that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be 2018 all over again. You're going to see states kind of taking it on their own. Um, but the problem is, is that states quite haven't, haven't quite figured out what to do with industrial hemp, CBD, and things like that. And now you're going to also have task them with, you know, regulating a legal marijuana market. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of state legislatures and departments of ag and health and human services are going to be completely overwhelmed. So I think that while we're all hoping, you know, that we have an open, free, safe, um, profitable cannabis marketplace in the United States, I think that it's going to be a regulatory nightmare if some of these states start passing recreational markets for, for marijuana when they've not even figured out industrial hemp and CBD yet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I, I, the patchwork that uh, system that develops creates problems at, at every, every level. Um, the one I always look at is, of course, compliance. Is, you know, once the feds right, um, really jump in with both feet, Boy, my grammar's horrible today. But when the feds jump in with both feet, um, you know, and the FDA really gets involved, there's going to be a lot of conflict with state regulations. But in the interim, how is the CBDA handling um, working with each of the states to try and, you know, get as much standardized or normal across state boundaries, even though you can't necessarily move the product in as easily as you'd like to across in every way, at least if the same standards are applied, there's a baseline. How are you handling that? Well, I think the one thing that we've discovered in our interactions with industry stakeholders and with, you know, members of state government is that there's a large educational gap, right? And so, you know, you'll have some states, Arizona used to be an example to where they, you know, their Department of Ag was trying to create a hemp, an industrial hemp program, while at the same time, their criminal code had not been amended to decriminalize industrial hemp. So you would have, you know, government agency policy that said industrial hemp is okay and here's how you do it. Well, technically it was illegal on the books in the criminal code. So I think that you're seeing a rush with legislatures to try to create these legal markets, but they don't have the education that's necessary to understand the interplay between you know, industrial hemp, cannabis, um, and the decriminalization process. So what we're trying to do with our advocacy campaigns is really get in front of legislatures and helping them understand kind of the roadblocks that they're going to face. Um, helping them understand the science of it. And this isn't just, you know, a, a knock on state legislatures. This exists at the federal level. This was one of the reasons that the hemp bill, you know, was not an easy thing to pass because a lot of our, you know, senators and representatives just simply didn't understand the difference between industrial hemp and marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, bringing on companies that are seeking to do business in large markets, you know, expressing to them the importance of educating the market, the, the legislatures of the markets in which they're going to ingest a product, 
Um, that's number one. Until we have that basic education, you know, we're going to have these problems to where you're going to have agencies competing against one another. You're going to have, you know, the state government saying one thing from the governor's office, another thing from the legislature, and another thing from the Department of Ag. So that's step one. Um, and then step two, it's meeting with industry leaders that are going to be in particular marketplaces. You know, on a national level, that obviously means, you know, working with the FDA, DEA, USDA. Um, but it also means, you know, if you have a, a product that you want to ingest in 50 markets in the United States, you got to have conversations with all 50 markets. You know, it's a different regulatory patchwork in each state. And so the education part is obviously big so we can help our members assess risk before they ingest the product in a particular jurisdiction. Um, but then kind of bringing everyone together under one tent so we can adequately advocate for the industry standards that this, that this market needs. Yeah, and I mean, the education role of CDA is, uh, is huge. I mean, uh, as an association, you know, the power in bringing that uniform level of knowledge up um, across the board and across the, the country is incredibly valuable and uh, shouldn't be underestimated in any way, shape, or form. But it's something which anybody who, you know, chooses to participate with the association um, benefits from, but also can become a voice in helping shape the direction of the, the legislation and the regulations. Um, I, you know, from my perspective, that's, that's incredible value to, uh, to be examined and looked at, you know, and having worked with governments in South America and Europe and elsewhere, in helping them develop their laws and regulatory framework, it can't be underestimated. And it isn't just a one-step process where you're dealing with government officials, but it's in terms of elected officials. There's the unaffected, unelected officials as well, but also there's the industry that isn't necessarily directly participating today, but is interested and could in the future. And having a really effective uh, education and information strategy around that is so valuable. And that's where, you know, the association I think can do, can, does, can and does wonders. I think what we see often is that folks read in a headline that, you know, there's decriminalization of CBD, hemp, marijuana, whatever. And they think that means that they can go and legally purchase it, you know, the next day. And that's nobody's fault. It's just, you know, a lack of understanding for how regulatory law actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, people need people need to understand that it's been decriminalized, which means if somehow it's in your possession, you're not going to get arrested for it, which is which is good, and that's progress for sure. But we have to create safe industry standards within that jurisdiction, from everything from you know source material, THC concentration, all the way to labeling and packaging, uh, and those are things that need to be sorted out before you're going to be able to you know, turn up, turn on the main street of your town and see a lawfully licensed recreational or medical marijuana facility. And those are the things that we are trying to work hard to make sure that the standards, like to get from point A of decriminalization, to point B of an open, legal, safe market, that's where the dirty work is done. Passing the law is the easy part. What's difficult is actually, you know, doing the nuts and bolts, you know, the hard gritty work of creating a, a safe, open marketplace. And I think, Richard, you brought up a really good point about the unelected officials and their role. Um, Nothing is more illustrative of that than the FDA and the DEA and the USDA and their various roles and interim roles that they've issued in regards to industrial hemp or cannabinoids in general, um, specifically CBD. And 
the various um, headaches that it's caused for everyone in the industry to have to operate in a um, sometimes a regulatory void or in sometimes a space where you have huge administrative agencies that don't see eye to eye on things. Mm-hmm. Or um, using the most recent example of the DEA's interim rule, their attempt to adopt the 2018 Farm Bill definitions, which most of the industry would argue is way overstepping what the Farm Bill did, and um, actually in its application makes a lot of legal product illegal by not taking into account the practicality of how a cannabinoid is extracted from the plant. Um, so I think you hit it right on the head. If you can't, if, if you don't understand how unelected official, both your elected officials and your unelected officials need to be educated and what happens when they aren't educated. I think looking at the DEA's new interim rule, uh, or final interim rule is a perfect example of how it can go very wrong very quickly. Oh, it absolutely can. And I know, you know, in my, my experience um, at Plano with Peru was, mm-hmm. you know, I met 60 of the 120 odd Congress people, um, you know, probably about 70 of them in all to walk through the different aspects. And their questions were much more, you know, 30,000 foot and more, more material just about the, their questions about diversion and issues around that. Whereas with the regulators, the, um, you know, the, the, de- the, que- the level of detail was very, very, uh, was incredible. And, but the thing that people don't un- often understand is, you know, yes, like you said, people just pass the laws, but then it becomes a question of even the transportation of the goods falls under a different regulatory framework mm-hmm. than the health department or the FDA or anything else, because the product needs to be moved around. And there's compliance regulations for for that, and that's just one aspect. You know, in in various countries I've dealt with, and I've actually just recently been contacted, uh, and I'll you know doing some of that work uh, directly for another government um, because they have to tie together you know not just the health department and agriculture, but also you know their equivalent of health. There they have an independent labbing uh, lab. Uh, testing and production facility that tries to be arm's length. They have their transportation for in and out. They have their finance groups that have to get involved. And they have an industry, uh, a ministry that deals with industry, all of which have to be coordinated. And there's regulations in each one of those dealing with different aspects of products that have to all be brought into alignment. And, you know, that type of that type of involvement that you guys have to keep aware of, I think most people don't recognize that an association like yours has to deal with all those aspects and that, you know, it's not just dealing with elected officials when you're talking about getting a government on board. Um, but we should come back to that after the, after the break, which we have to take again, um, because I'm just going to, you know, ask a little bit about where you see that going, but also, you know, some, some ideas about uh, some of those pressure points. So we'll be back in a moment with Morgan Davis and Matt Lewis from uh, CBDA, the CBD Association. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah. 
how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at s-h-o-o-g-i-e-s dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success, Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back on the Green Peak with Morgan Davis and Matt Lewis from CBDA, the CBD Association. And, you know, just before the break, we were talking about trying to coordinate some of the regulatory uh, agencies and bodies and things that, you know, participants in the industry don't always consider right off the bat. And, um, you know, this is something which, you know, I encourage our listeners who have questions to contact uh, the, the association about. And just before we jump into a couple of final questions, how should they contact you? Where, what's the preferred channel? And is there a different channel for a uh, different type of participation? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're super thankful that we are, you know, we represent every industry from seed to sale. Um, definitely check out our website at www.cbdassoc.org. Um, or they can contact Morgan or myself directly at mlewis or mdavis at cbdassoc.org. Fantastic. And, you know, as, as we look at that and, you know, we were talking a bit about, you know, during the different things, the the differences from state to state from a regulatory perspective, but also then, um, you know, federal and, you know, having dealt with the international side, all of these rules eventually have to get aligned as we work internationally. And it's just as products that are, you know, manufactured to a pharmaceutical standard in the U.S. or accepted in Europe and, you know, we're in Canada into Europe and different areas into Europe. Cannabis products are going to be very much the same. But that level of, um, you know, it's not just lobbying that makes it happen, but it is lobbying is, is a positive term in the perspective of bringing the awareness into a uniform level. How, how is the association going to handle that? As, you know, as more and more states uh, come online, the export uh, demands are stronger and stronger. And that, that requires that requires an alignment. How does the association look at that? Unless, and I'll, I'll see if Morgan agrees with me or disagrees because we've not talked about it, but I think you bring up a good point. You know, we've been active in all 50 states um, with some international work as well. The one thing that I've kind of noticed is while these states are, you know, acting independently of the FDA or USDA to create their own framework, it doesn't seem like a lot of agencies are talking to one another outside of the jurisdiction, right? And so I think that kind of, whether intentionally or not, I think that kind of creates a problem. You know, we ran into an issue with New York with their hemp law to where they were, you know, originally going to require any hemp product uh, or any CBD product sold in New York to be labeled as a dietary supplement. Uh, You know, that would have been a huge, had a huge impact on the cosmetic industry, for example. Their proposed regulations have since taken that out, but it's 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 an example of a legislature thinking very vertically integrated for these products being sold in their state, but really not addressing the issue as Richard, you've, you mentioned earlier of transporting products across state lines. And I think that's our biggest fear, both uh, you can use the United States as a microcosm of that. I think that's correct. And it's, um, it's very, the U.S. is in a very interesting spot at the moment. Um, It is easier in terms of, if you just look at DEA licensing, it is easier to get a DEA license to export cannabis in the United States 
than it is to move it from one state to the other. In fact, a license doesn't exist to do that. Correct. Um, and so there is a little bit for the industry, there's a little bit of a, a, an external guidance, which depending on where you're exporting to, um, in order to comply with that country's or your export partner's requirements, you're going to have to comply with those guidelines. Um, and often those guidelines are, at the moment, much more developed than the, United, than the U.S.'s guidelines or the state that they're in um, than those guidelines. So there's a little bit of help or maybe a hindrance, depending on how you see it. Certainly it can affect the cost of exporting your product. Um, but I think it also, for me, I think looking to other countries that we see as um, large markets, Canada, the UK, Europe in general, but also China, and we can look around and see um, how those markets have developed and use them as guidance material in developing our own, which is what I hope and what we seek to encourage some of our members to do. Um, but at the end of the day, I think as Matt, you know, to bring it back around, as Matt said, we have a country that's very divided on party lines. Yes. And regardless of whether or not it makes sense for an industry or whether we consider it logical, um, we often see in this country that party lines and um, killing a bill for spite is not an uncommon occurrence. Um, yes, and that's getting worse, and, unfortunately, not better, the lack of bipartisan collaboration yeah. across issues. Yeah. Yes, it is. Which makes it difficult for an emerging industry. Very much so. Um, even though this is an industry that, contrary to the way it was probably, you know, a little 20 years ago, this industry now has um, support across across the aisle amongst um, many Republicans and Democrats for a variety of reasons. Um, but even the appearance of agreeing on a subject at the moment doesn't seem to be something that um, most of our politicians want to do. Yeah, so, so riddle me this. A majority of members of the House represent districts that have voted in favor of legalization which would also mean imply that a majority of the senators also represent districts where there would have been those votes. Why is it not more bipartisan at that point if the individual voters for a majority of the members of Congress of both parties have voted in favor? So based on, you know, based on the fact that a majority of the members of Congress represent districts that have voted where the jurisdictions fall in areas which have voted for legalization, why is this not more of a bipartisan issue? When it comes to the Senate, go, go ahead, Ben. <laughs> Sorry, I think I have some technical stuff going on. Uh, it, it is a bipartisan issue, but when it comes to the Senate, our opinion is, and this is just our opinion, and you know, keep in mind we're a bipartisan organization, is that the legalization or decriminalization of cannabis has you know, historically been a left democratic issue. So if I'm a Republican controlled Senate, you know, I want to hold up the decriminalization or legalization as a bartering trip, bartering chip for issues that have nothing to do with cannabis. And so that's why, you know, in the beginning of the podcast that we talked about 
you know, we may, if the Republicans control the Senate, we may see some watered down version of decriminalization. Um, you're, you're spot on, Richard, in your interpretation that this is a bipartisan issue. You know, it's great for agriculture, which are typically Republican issues, and it's great for, you know, more of the left issues, which are the legalization and retail sale of cannabis. Um, but it's politics as usual. And I think that's something that is, you know, going to be a, a, a hurdle for the cannabis industry in the state for the foreseeable future. And I would uh, I would agree with all of that and add one um, little hiccup that we come across in our specific Senate, which is our Senate Majority Leader, um, who is a heavy hitter advocate for the hemp industry, um, has not been equally uh, supportive of the marijuana industry. And so I think that's where you see some of the divide between senators who are certainly on board with industrial hemp, um, especially on the agriculture side, especially in the Southeast or in the South in general and the Midwest, um, whether due to uh, their constituents or a longstanding uh, involvement on the quote unquote war on drugs, um, have not shown the same amount of support for the marijuana industry. No, I don't know. And I understand that. I think that's, that's fair. I, I just, I, I understand that. I think that's fair. And I think sometimes we have to uh, just take a step back and, you know, recognize also our representatives are supposed to be our, our representatives and our voices, and they should be mm -hmm. responding to the majority of their constituents, not always their personal uh, agendas uh, along the way. But on that, and just as a last question, because I know we're running out of time, is um, the MORE Act is being brought to the House for a vote next month. Any thoughts on why they would choose to address this now between, you know, between November and January? I, I think it's uncertainty over what's going to happen. And I, I, keep, I keep saying the word Georgia, but I think it's uncertainty over what's going to happen there. Um, I think the MORE Act, if it's a Republican controlled Senate has, you know, they may be, they may, there may, may be some fear about whether or not, you know, the Republicans lose the Senate. Um, and so they're trying to kind of jam it through before then or, or fight it before then, I guess. Um, because I do think that if, you know, Georgia turns blue and the, the Senate turns blue, that there is a fear among Republicans that the Moore Act would be kind of jammed through rather quickly. I also think it's trying to capitalize on the momentum. Um, with five states passing, both on the red, you know, both red and blue states passing legalization in various forms with a 68% national approval rating with you, exactly. you know, so many other states starting to make moves. I think it's a, you know, they feel like there's a, a good momentum behind legalization and behind cannabis in general. And this is something that they can use to act on that is um, very popular amongst the, um, amongst most Americans right now. But I think to Morgan to Morgan's point, she, she's she's dead right about the House wanting to capitalize on the on the momentum. But they also, you know, they know that if they bring it up now, that it would you know it would not pass the Republican Senate um, at this time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's another thing to campaign on. I think it's a political move. Um, not necessarily saying I disagree with it because I think the Moore Act is great, um, but it is uh, political posturing, which you're going to see a lot of that in a, a wide variety of American political Absolutely issues. Absolutely, we couple. will. Absolutely, yeah. we will. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a critical time for everybody again for uh, longer than people expected. But we are out of town. Town. Start that again. But we are out of time. 
I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us today and discussing, you know, the after effects of the election and where things go from here on out. And love to have you on again in a few months once uh, Georgia's settled and the inauguration's through and we can see what happens the first hundred days. And, uh, you know, that's always the critical period when you see a lot of the uh, early movement and quick wins. So let's see what happens. Thank you uh, for joining us today, Morgan and Matt from the CBD Association, and to everybody for listening. I'm Richard. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Thank you both. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.